science uh, to define our world. Um, there's so many ways that science reveals who you are, but God, there's a mystery, there's a mystery that we want to know and come to, to grips with that's larger than any language of science can give. It's an experience in our lives, God, that puts you again in the place you should be. So God, may this poetry that we read today, maybe these words from a wise man written centuries ago, uh, speak again as your spirit moves through this room. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Samuel 4 sets the context for the story I want to open you to this morning. In 1 Samuel 4, uh, kind of prior to that, we've had the people of God that have been released from bondage and they've entered into the promised land. And then we read in the book of Judges that the people did what was right in their own eyes and uh, it didn't go well for them. And so this morning we come to 1 Samuel where Samuel is now the prophet and Samuel is speaking on behalf of God. But in 1 Samuel 4, things don't seem to be going well because the Philistines have overtaken the Israelites, the people of God. And along with that, they steal something that's important to the Israelites. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And so as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 5, I want you to know about this Ark of the Covenant because this has some important significance to Israel. How do we know the Ark of the Covenant is such a significant thing? Well, we've all seen Indiana Jones, right? And if Indiana was willing to do what he was willing to do to fight the Nazis off for the Ark of the Covenant, then we know, no, seriously, the Ark is this powerful thing. God says that he sits between the cherubim on the Ark. It's the significance of God in the midst of the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle that they carry around. And inside the Ark were three things that Scripture tells us. Uh, you have the, uh, the, the, the staff of Aaron that was significant. You have a jar of manna that reminded them that God had provided for them when they were in the wilderness. And then there's the two tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them. So they carry this ark around with them as a reminder that God is with them, but it's been taken from them. And so we read in 1 Samuel 5 what happens when the Philistines overtake this important uh, part of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. It says there, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, you may have never heard of the god Dagon, but Dagon is the father of a, of a god that shows up a lot of times in Scripture, a foreign god named Baal. Baal was kind of a god over the weather and, you know, making sure there was enough rain to fall. This is his dad, Dagon, who has a temple in Ashdod. So I want you to imagine this structure's been built to house an idol, and Dagon's represented with this thing they'd carved up and called God. And, and then they come in and they set up basically a second pedestal and set the Ark of the Covenant on that pedestal. So this temple of Dagon now has two gods that are represented here. Well, let's read on and see what happens in the following verse, verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face, fallen on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Now, if you worship a god and you have a temple of your god, it's not a good thing to walk in and find your god laying on the floor. Somebody has either made a mistake or something's gone wrong. Not only that, this god Dagon has fallen kind of before the ark of God. Symbolic of things. And I want you to imagine being the person who was the caretaker for that temple. You walk in every morning and you expect Dagon to be on his pedestal. But you walk in on this particular morning and Dagon's not where he should be. He's actually kind of sprawled out on the ground in front of the ark. 
So you have this awkward decision to make, right? You hurry over there and you pick him up and you put him back on the pedestal, which is a little odd to have the God you're worshiping have to do that for, right? Well, day two, the next, the next day something even more happens after he's placed this back on its pedestal. This is verse 4. But the following morning when they rose, there was uh, Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now this isn't a good sign, right? <laughs> not, now he's not just falling off. Now he's missing his hands and his head, which is no way you want to find your God that you worship. So of course that guy who sets up the temple walks in the next day, I think hoping probably Dagon's where he should be. And he walks in the next day and Dagon's not only on the ground, now he's, he's like Humpty Dumpty. You've got to put him back together again. So imagine being like the caretaker for this temple. You've got to go and piece together and put super glue on and put it in place. Make it look like everything's just good with these two gods showing up. But that's not the way it is. A god without head and hands isn't much good, is it? He doesn't have much of a mind to help. He doesn't have hands to do anything. So we read in verse 6 what happens eventually. It gets worse. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. I want you to get the Hebrew humor in this, which may be hard to pick up lost in translation, right? But you got to love this, right? They, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. The Lord has a hand, the other God doesn't, right? I mean, this is kind of ironic, right? And his, his hand's heavy on these people, and there's tumors that have developed on these people. Now, translation is a difficult thing because in the Hebrew, there's far fewer words than there are in English to choose from. And so there's always translation struggles between different words that can mean several different English words. And this happens to be one of those words that can mean tumors, but it can mean something else. And it's not good either. It can also mean hemorrhoids. Seriously, like that, that's really, I'm, I'm talking from Hebrew perspective, it can be either one of these things. So uh, we don't know if it's tumors, we don't know if it's hemorrhoids. The point is, they want to get this ark out of there as fast as they can. So that's what they do, they hand the ark back to Israel and everything seems to be better again. It's a funny story, a, a great story to tell your kids before bedtime, but this story's trying to make a point. See, monotheism is new on the scene in this day and age, right? Back in Israel, when they'd been in bondage, there was a God for the sun, there was a there was a fertility god, there was a Nile god, there were all these gods. And, and you would worship all these gods to make sure that all these gods provided what you needed. Whether that was water from the Nile or that was, uh, you know, to have a firstborn son. You'd, you'd make sure you took care of that one god. So there was a god of wealth and a god of the moon and a god of the sea and, and you, you get the picture. In fact, the early Christians were known in the first century AD as atheists. Which is interesting because they believed in God. The reason they were called atheists is they didn't believe in all of the gods. They were monotheists. And this was a huge leap forward for the people of God because what they were saying was, all these gods that everyone worships that you're so inclusive of, that's not how this works when it comes to Yahweh. He demands full loyalty. He's the only God. He's the most powerful God. And he doesn't allow you to have an open relationship and worship others. So in, in the book of Acts, there's a story where Paul, the apostle, comes into the city of Athens. And he goes up on a place that some of you may have visited if you've ever been to Athens. It's near the Parthenon, just a little down the way. There's this place called Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was where all the philosophers of their day would gather and they would, they, they would debate all kinds of things about philosophy. But there were all these gods that were up on Mars Hill. There was all these gods like they were worshiping back then. Uh, but then there's this extra god that shows up. There's the 
God to the, the idol to the unknown God, the statue of the unknown God, basically. So basically, you don't want to offend any God. So you think of as many as you can. You create statues for them, but you create one more just to make sure you didn't miss one, right? And Paul walks into this scene. What do you expect Paul to do? You guys know there's only one God. What are you guys up? That's not what he does. He walks into Athens and he says, you know what? You people are very religious. You're very spiritual. He actually affirms them before he tries to share the truth of them. And he says, listen, there's a God to the unknown God here. Let me tell you about him. This God is actually the one true God. And, and some believe him, some are converted, but many aren't in this scene. But I love the way Paul enters into this. It's not to condemn, it's to affirm where he can and then to point out, hey, you have this unknown God, let me tell you exactly who he is. But in 1 Samuel 5, it makes it clear that God doesn't allow himself to stand beside any other idol. And, and then there's another interesting part of the story that I don't quite understand. I mean, if I were this group of people that had this God with no arms and no head, I think I'd opt for the ark God over this God, right? But what do they do? They send the ark away and they keep believing in this God that really has no power at all. They don't repent and follow Yahweh, they end up following Dagon. See, there's only one thing that you can count on idols to do. And I talked about this last week. Idols are good for this. Idols never fail to fail. It doesn't matter what idol we put in our lives, if we elevate anything above God, that thing will always fail us. Because that's what idols do. And even though that's the case, and we found that in our own lives, we tried to put things in that place that's going to fill us up, what we end up doing is trying something else, don't we? We keep trying, even though we know they fail us. So last week we talked about the temptation to make people into idols. We talked about the idol of family relationships. Sometimes we expect spouses or children to become for us what only God can, and no human can bear the, the weight of Godhood. So what we do when we put that person on the throne of our lives is we put too much pressure on the relationship, and the relationship ends up crumbling because it can't bear the weight that we try to put onto it. This morning I want to move from talking about the idol- idolatry of people to talk about the idolatry of things, of experiences, I want to talk this morning about the God of pleasure. And to do that, I want to look about, uh, to, to a story of a guy who knew pleasure real, real well. His name was King Solomon, and that's where I told you to keep a bookmark in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, King Solomon was the son of King David. King David's the most famous king in, in Israel's history. So Solomon asked God in a scene actually for wisdom. And so he becomes the wisest man on the face of the earth. The queen of Sheba comes and and sees all the wisdom and all the wealth that he has. He's the wealthiest man on on earth at this time. Solomon writes several books and Ecclesiastes is one of those books that Solomon writes. And Ecclesiastes is basically his chronicling of trying to put different gods on the throne of his heart and they all fail him. So in the beginning in chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes it says... You know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. He's tried all these different routes, he's tried through work, he's tried through, through, through pleasure, he's tried through uh, all kinds of different routes, trying to find where life can be had, where it can be enjoyed, and he doesn't find it in the places he would expect. And so in chapter 2, it talks about his pursuit of happiness through pleasure, and this is what it says, this is Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1, the words of Solomon. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? 
I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind, uh, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. You see Solomon's quest, right? All these different forms to pursue pleasure. He seeks pleasure in wine. He, he seeks pleasure in construction projects. He seeks pleasure in empire building, in his riches, in entertainment, in a whole harem of women. He denied himself nothing in his pursuit of pleasure. And it seems like he had a great time. It doesn't say it wasn't pleasurable. I mean, if, if you're engaging in sin and it's not fun, you're doing it wrong, right? But that doesn't mean that there isn't a cost to be paid. From the pleasure that we pursue. Because in the end, what Solomon says, I pursued it all, and what I found was, it was meaningless. The chasing after the wind couldn't catch up to it. You know, this right, this pursuit of happiness is something that's enshrined in America's founding documents, isn't it? Something we've been said that this is a right that we have to pursue. And many of us have spent our lives, we've even spent our salaries pursuing this thing. And yet it's elusive, isn't it? What do we have for, to show for it? After all your pursuits toward pleasure, are you more filled? Or are you more empty? And here's what I found after a decade of ministry of walking with people, walking in my own journey along these paths, is when we begin to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. When we begin to worship, again, worship, enthrone pleasure, pain comes on the other side. I've seen it in families that have been split apart by decisions to pursue this. I've seen this in the lives of individuals that find addiction on the other side, trying to find something that would fill them. Now, I want to clarify before you misunderstand. Pleasure is a gift from God to be enjoyed. And God's commands are not to meant to keep us from pleasure. They're actually meant to lead us toward pleasure. Remember, God created the world for our enjoyment. And the problem is not when Christians enjoy the creation. The problem comes when Christians enthrone the creation. When they take created things and they put them out of order and try to find all of their life and suck all of the juice from these things to fill their life in a way. Now, I, again, I want to say and affirm what the church often hasn't. And that is that pleasure is a good thing. It's something that God created for our enjoyment, but not for our worship. A food, for instance, is a gift, right? I mean, God designed our bodies to need constant nutrition. And he could have designed any process for us to get that nutrition, but he gave us a great gift in food that's to be enjoyed. I mean, who doesn't enjoy bluebell ice cream, right? God knew what he was doing. God could have made eating a miserable experience. Could have made all the food taste bad. And there's still some that I try to opt out for, but... On the whole, it's an enjoyable experience. 
But when food moves from being a gift to becoming a God, when we start to look for food to do for us what only God can do in our lives, it doesn't turn out good. Just look at the stats on obesity and heart disease in our country and you can see the result of a culture that sometimes allowed food to become that God. Sex is also a gift that the church hasn't always affirmed. God commanded us to be fruitful and to multiply. And he could have designed any reproductive process to create uh, sons and daughters for us to continue life on earth. But he chose a pleasurable way by his design for us to be united and glued to one another as spouses. Sex is good. It's a gift from God himself. But isn't it amazing how some of the richest and most wonderful gifts that God gives to us become some of the most hideous and destructive idols that we keep hidden from those we love most? We twist them. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That sex is beautiful, but when it walks outside the commands that God has given to us, it can lead to incredible pain. See, when something good becomes a God, the pleasure that we seek in the process dies. Because pleasure has this unique trait. The more intensely you chase it, the less you're able to grasp onto it. And that's what these gods do. They promise us incredible satisfaction. If we can only find more of it, then finally we get to that place where we would be able to enjoy. But the, the truth is it actually works the opposite way. There's an immediate sense of, of guilt often when we step outside of his commands. There's an immediate hunger for more. When pleasure becomes your God, pleasure does not multiply. It subtracts, it dissipates, it disappears. And it's amazing what people are willing to sacrifice for pleasure. I've seen people sacrifice their marriages. I've seen people sacrifice their children, their careers on the altar of sexual pleasure, of pornography. But what you don't know when you engage in that is how much this God will cost you. It'll cost you everything and it'll really give you nothing in return. Because the God of pleasure is the master of the bait and switch. Pleasure promises much and it takes even more. And if you've ever walked down this path, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Because the gods never demand less, they always demand more. Some of you know quite well the the law of diminishing returns. How many of you know about the law of diminishing returns? Some of you are finance officers, and you could probably do this better than I could explain it. But there is a law of diminishing returns when it comes to pleasure in our lives as well. Ask any addict of drugs or alcoholic or sex addict, and they will tell you that each time they get their stimulus, it's not as nearly as good as the last time, and it's never as good as the first time. The pleasure God tells us that satisfaction can be found with a, a bigger hit or a longer binge, but instead the substance hooks its claws into us even deeper, because the gods always demand more than they're willing to give. With most things, we think that if we could just have more, then we'd be happy. That's the title of the sermon, What More Do You Want? And in almost every facet of our lives, if you think that the answer is more, you're believing in a lie. Now, I did have a, you know, a staff member that said, well, is that true with with toilet paper? (laughs) I mean, it's not true with everything, right? We need nutrition to live, right? There are things in our lives we know we need more of. But when it comes to these substances and these things that we begin to think... It will fill us up if we just have enough. There's never enough. And the gods give us that lie in order for us to turn in our lives, to give over the things that are a blessing in our life for something that never satisfied. Solomon pursued everything. He engaged in everything. He had everything. 
And in the end, all he says is it's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. It's just a vapor. So what advice would you expect Solomon to end his book with? He's pursued all these things, and I don't know, I, would, I guess I would expect him to say, well, life's not found in anything that God's given to us. But it's interesting what, God's, what Solomon says, what God says through Solomon. It's a little counterintuitive to what I would expect him to say. Turn a few chapters forward, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Listen to what he says later on in the book as he begins to kind of turn the corner to say, this is where life is found. This is Ecclesiastes 8 verse 15. It says there, so I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. And then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. Now in chapter 2, it's interesting because he says something what, that seems the opposite, doesn't it? I pursued pleasure, I, I pursued all these things, and what I found on the other side was no enjoyment. It was nothing. But just a few chapters later, Solomon encourages the reader and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to enjoy your life. I want you to enjoy the food and the drink that I give to you. A little bit later in chapter 9, he says, I want you to enjoy the wife, the spouse of your youth. What's Solomon trying to say? Let's clarify again what idolatry is. An idol is whatever you look at and you say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that then I'll feel like my life has meaning. I'll know that I have value. I'll be able to have a relationship that gives me sense of security and control in my life. But another word for that is worship, right? It's to give total loyalty to something, to think that this is a God that can actually uphold us. But there is a huge difference between enjoying God's gifts and worshiping God's gifts as if they're ultimate. If you enthrone any created thing and you try to find your life in it, you will end up disappointed because no substance can actually bear the weight that we put on it, just like the relationships we talked about last week. But what I found is when I trust God and when I put Him on the throne of my life and I trust the commands He's given to me, these pleasures of life within those boundaries and the commands He's given can be enjoyed in every way possible. A few weeks ago, I talked about an emerging chasm that's growing in the church between uh, groups that I see. One of those groups I talked about is a group that defines sin as the breaking of God's moral code. That God's laid out scripture, and if you do anything that's opposite what he said, then that's sin. But there's a new and emerging view that really sees sin differently. Sin is anything that causes harm to oneself or to another, or uh, that uses power in an inappropriate way over those with less power. And they're competing visions about what sin is in the world. And what I said was, many of us grew up in this world where we just pointed to Scripture and this other group saying, okay, that's great, but what harm does it cause? Why are these commands problems? Why is that a sin? What's the big deal? And what I said was, it's important for us through this series to realize we've got to be able to answer that why question. We've got to have some sense about it beyond just, well, Scripture says this, because if this group doesn't agree on the authority of Scripture, it's going to be hard for them to see and understand. And what I'm laying out today is part of the answer to the why that I think God's developed. These commands, sometimes what we think and what the evil one wants us to believe is that God is holding out on us with his commands. And if we just step outside of what he's commanded us, life will be found outside of the way he set the world up. But the thing is, God created the world. He knows how it works. He knows how to run it best. And these commands are not meant to keep us from pleasure. These commands are actually supposed to show us the boundaries that show us how to engage in pleasure best. 
And so if someone asks the question, well, why are these commands here? There are good reasons why those commands are there, because those commands are the way to life and life abundant. Because that's what God wants for each and every one of us, isn't it? So I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is not a God who sets up commands so that we have less life. This is a God who sets up his commands so that we can have more and an abundant life. Now, on Wednesday night this week, there's going to be a group that's going to gather at the building. Some are going to be going to a, a, a group called Hope Class. And it's a wonderful class that I encourage you to attend. There's another group that meets that's called Celebrate Recovery. And what's common about the people who walk in on Wednesday nights, especially to celebrate recovery, is these are people who are saying, I, I tried to find my life in something that wasn't God, and I ended up addicted to something that's destroying my life. They're real open about that. They're vulnerable because they realize, if I don't admit this, then I'm going to continue to destroy my life. And, and what the process of celebrate recovery, 12 steps, whatever any of that is, it's to recenter our focus on God. It's to admit that we're powerless and we can't do this on our own. And that God has actually designed the world in such a way to lead us to the fullest life possible. So maybe today you're realizing that maybe this God of pleasure has, has gotten its claws into you. I've told my story before, that's part of my story as I've walked down that path and I had to find a way to put God back on the throne of my life and to trust his commands and what I'm finding is my relationship with my wife is better when I'm faithful to her in every way that I possibly can be when I follow the commands of scripture it leads to more life and not less my guess is in a room this size that some of you realize this is this is the idol in my life right now maybe it's through the bottle and maybe it's through a website that your spouse doesn't know about or, or maybe Maybe it's that kind of lonely journey you're walking through, trying to find life wherever you can find it. It can't be found in any of those places. It's only found in God. And if we order our world correctly by putting him on the throne and trusting the commands he's given to us, I'm telling you, life can be a pleasurable experience, and the church needs to affirm that more than we have in the past. Within the boundaries of marriage, sexuality is a brilliant and wonderful gift that ties us together. It's something we're to enjoy. That outside of the drunkenness that's outside of what God commands, there are ways to enjoy food and drink in healthy ways. And it's not to say that God doesn't want us to enjoy these things. It's to say he's trying to lead us to life. And I'm learning to trust that more and more. So right now we're about to come to the table of the Lord. It's a place where we take bread and we take cup. We take food and we take drink. It's a small bite. And maybe some of your, your stomach's grumbling. You're ready for a bigger bite. But... We do this every week as a way to remind ourselves that this food and this drink orients our lives, that we're trusting in the way of Jesus more and more. So today as you take this cracker and as you take this cup, maybe this is the day you need to hand over again that idol to God. And, and maybe you've tried it before. If you're anything like me, you've tried to do this over and over again. You've, you've, you've made mistakes and then you, you ask God for forgiveness and you end up in the same guilt cycle over and over again. I want you to trust again today in his path and his life and his commands. It's what brings life. So today as we take this bread and we drink this cup, we remember Jesus and him crucified. We remember a life that was, that was self-sacrificial, that didn't look to his own interests, but looked to the interests of others. And this same Jesus who died on the cross is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. When we follow him, we find the abundant life that can be found in no other place. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. It, everyone who's a believer in Jesus, please partake with us. You're welcome here. God, we, uh, we come to you today. And uh, 
God, I, I can't tell you how many communion services I have tried to repent again and again of the mistakes that I make. And I wonder, God, are you willing to forgive me again? And what I find every time is yes, because you're trying to point us to life. God, I want us as a room this morning again to repent of the ways that we found, try to find life in things other than you and substances and experiences. Like Solomon, life is not found in those things, it's found in you. And when we find that, when we're filled by you, it's amazing how we're able to engage in your good creation in ways that are pleasurable, that add joy to our lives. So God, I pray for marriages in this room that need to be restored and find that again. That somehow, God, you would break through hard hearts, that you would soften hearts of others, that you would help people see where true life is found. It's not found in another. It's not found in a, a, a hit of any kind, God. It's found in, in you. And so we worship you again today. We, we lay our lives down again to you today. We sacrifice ourselves all over again and trust in your way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Thanks, Larry. As we close today, I just want to make you aware that every, every Wednesday night, there's uh, people here at the building that would love um, to greet you. If you've got something you want to walk through in your life, Celebrate Recovery's changed my life, and there are people here that would love and tell their stories all the time about what God's doing. And so we want to invite you at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights to come up here and be a part of that. If, if, if this sermon's hit you in particular in a way, uh, maybe that's a group for you. I'd love to talk with you also if you'd like, or there are people to pray in the back if you'd like to do that before you leave today. I want to close, though, with a... A word from scripture that we read just a moment ago, and then we're going to sing a final song after that. If you'd stand right now, I want to read this benediction and blessing over you before we sing and, and, uh, and finish our time here and are sent out to be the light of the world. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. May we love God, may we love people, may we serve others. Let's sing about that God one more time who's better.